ISEP Connect April edition. Um, um, what we're going to do today is we're going to look in particular at lifestyle sports in physical education. And in particular, um, this sort of passion has come from those of you who know me personally, I'm often found attached to a set of wheels, whether that be two wheels on a bicycle, six wheels or eight wheels on my roller skates. That's how I commuted this morning. Um, and it got me started and got me thinking about um, the sports that aren't necessarily chosen as the first sports to be done in physical education and starts me asking one really why. Um, especially as in England, we have our Chief Medical Officer's Physical Activity Guidelines, which go all the way through zero, all the way to elderly. And in every single um, infographic that we have, there is very much the suggestion of the use of scooters or skateboards or bicycles to help with physical activity. And then for our children and young people, there's also the emphasis on PE, as well as these um, wheels-based or lifestyle-based sports. Um, so it made me start thinking, well, why are we not actually looking at much more at these as potential sports to develop lifelong, life-wide physical activity for our children and young people? And this is where we get to in terms of our experts. So um, I'm really privileged to be joined today by three amazing um, speakers who we'll be heading to in just a second. So Professor Carey is um, our director at Nottingham Centre of Children, Young People and Families. And her particular passion is looking at skateboarding. And she's going to tell us uh, more about her research and her expertise in that field in just a moment. Following Carrie, we're going to head to Jordan. Jordan is at the University of Gloucestershire, so a little bit further west in terms of England, if we're doing our English geography as well. And um, Jordan uh, lives and breathes um, lifestyle sports. Um, he's just come this morning from teaching kickboxing and CrossFit. Yesterday, you might have seen that he was out paddleboarding with his classes. And today, we've asked him to talk about parkour. And then to finish off, we're going to hear from Dr. Allison, um, who is based at the University of Roehampton and leads on the physical education there. When Allison isn't being a world champion in pole vault, she is found, often found uh, with a attached to a pair of ice um, skates and is often found long speed skating or off BMXing with me. So um, it gives me great joy to introduce all of these speakers today, and I thank them so much for their time and for sharing their expertise today. So I'm just going to stop sharing my screen, and I'm going to head back to, um, hopefully pressing the right buttons, to our screen to join our, um, our team. And hopefully that allowed me to stop sharing. Can somebody give me a thumbs up just to share that? I, thank you so much, Cassandra. And we're gonna hand over to Carrie to hear all about her expertise. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody. Um, I haven't got any fancy slides, unlike everybody else. So I'm just going to talk. Um, and I should start by saying I am not a skateboarder. So I don't participate well. I don't really participate in skateboarding. I learned to push as part of the study, but it took me a year. Um, 
and and I can just about do it. Um, so I'm I'm going to talk about the study that I've been doing with with others on girl skateboarders, and it's a twenty month study. We're just writing it up now of the lived experience of young women skateboarders. Um, it's funded by the Leverhulme Trust and it has an interdisciplinary team from Nottingham Trent University, Leeds University and Skateboard GB. Um, it's a qualitative study, so it's, it's entirely observational interview focus group. Um, we, didn't, we, we did collect a few stats, but not vast, vast numbers. Um, and it was focused on three skate parks in two different cities or in and around two different cities. So there's two skate parks, one of which is in, a, in the city centre of one city and the other of which is in a village in the, in the surrounding area. And then there's one other skate park in a city. Um, the two skate parks in the same city were unmanaged open public skate parks. The one in the second city um, and they're all in England. The one in the second city is a managed skate park, and that does make a difference. Um, and we also looked at the associated skate spaces in both cities. And what that means is that we were able to, to um, observe um, street skating as well as, as park skating, they're quite different. Um, and the people that do them may be different. And it gave us access to street skaters as well as to park skaters. Um, although, to be honest, within a city, people will skate both. So people would would people who were almost exclusively straight street skaters would tell us about their experiences in skate parks and vice versa. Um, and it, the stand is unusual because of that, because it, it's got this very broad focus and it focuses on more than one area. And one of the things we found that's different from the, the literature, which the literature suggests that the literature sort of previous studies focus on communities in particular skate parks. And we thought we'd get that, but actually mainly we didn't. There were some communities around street spots, but not around particular skate parks. And that may have been to do with the skate parks we chose, or it may just be that a lot of the studies are in America. Um, or Australia or, or, you know, and it's maybe different in, in the UK. Um, so we used mainly interviews. We interviewed around 60 skateboard, skateboarders, mainly young women aged eight to 27, um, but also other people. So we interviewed skate coaches, um, young men skaters, um, the uh, manager of a skate shop, um, people who hang about in skate parks or skate areas and don't skate. So we interviewed a whole group of people sort of who, who, um, who sort of inhabit the skateboarding world. And we also um, mapped, we devised a mapping system to map skate parks or map skate spaces, which can be adapted to any skate and in, indeed any other play space as far as we can tell. Um, that allows you to look at who's in the space and what they're doing and also what the power interactions are between them. So we can map if somebody is skating a line and somebody else snakes them or cuts them up or um, knocks them off or if they just fall over. Um, so I think it's important to say that, that our 
participants responded uh, participants reported a lot of benefits from skateboarding um particularly mental benefits so they talked about this the deep focus that skateboarding requires and certainly that's my experience you can't think about anything else because you can fall over um it's really difficult you know skateboarding is really difficult for anybody who doesn't do it it's really hard um and you really have to concentrate and people said things like well I normally have voices in my head but they go away when I'm skating um and that could be really nice if you know if you, you if you're constantly tormented by voices and you skate for two hours and the voices go away um people also talked about the physical benefits they talked about things like oh it gets you out in the open air and things like that and it makes you fitter but but obviously that's got to be balanced against the injury risk which is quite high in skateboarding and in particular concussion rates are higher than in skateboarding than in other lifestyle sports um and it's very noticeable how few skateboarders particularly on street wear helmets or any other protective gear for that matter um and Everybody complained about their knees and their ankles and people had had, you know, repeated quite serious injuries and um, and also sort of repeated soft tissue injuries, which meant things never got better. So somebody said, oh, yes, I've always got swell bows, meaning that, she, you know, she constantly rolled onto her elbow and then it swelled up and then she did it again two days later. Um, in many ways, young women's experience of skateboarding is quite different from young men's. So um, the sort of traditional way that young men learn skateboarding is that they show up at the park with a board or somebody lends them the board and somebody helps them to learn to skate. Um, and young women didn't feel able to do that. Um, you know, it's very unusual for a young woman to just show up on her own in, in a skate park. One young woman said, I've been wanting to skate for years. And and then I hung out at the skate park for a long time before I dared ask anyone. Um, and she was unusual. Most people have been introduced to skateboarding by young men mainly, um, unless they were they went to women and girls' night. So anyone that learned in the public skate park had been often had been introduced there, usually by a boyfriend who sort of introduced them to the local group. Um, and and it's particularly difficult for young women because if you show up at a skateboard a skate park with a um, with a board, you're assumed to be a, either able to skate or a poser. So you've got to start skating immediately. And young women are assumed to be posers unless they show. Otherwise, young men are assumed to be skateboarders unless they sit there for the whole session and don't do anything. Um, so that problem with the poser label is very difficult and very people are very aware of it. Um, young women seem to get a lot more hassle on the street from the general public and they get more hassle from other skateboarders um, or they get hassle from other skateboarders. And skateboarding can have some quite sexist as aspects. Um, so somebody told, told me about a, a skate, some skate wax that came in the form of a women's woman's breast, for example. Um, and there are lots of locations, you know, skateboarding tends to take part, take place in the edges of places. So a lot of locations are actually quite unsafe for women. So again, they can't go on their own. They get less practice time. They can't spend ages and ages in dark car parks learning how to fall. Um, so they, it takes them longer to get good unless they're, you know, really lucky or they, 
they have access to good to good training or good supportive people around them. Um, within skate parks, our observations make it very clear that young women don't feel able to use the full space. So if you if you do observations of the same skate park on a women only session and a mixed session, an open session, you'll find the women on the open session are all at the edges and they all talk about that as well. They don't feel able to use the full space of the park. Um, and, you know, that's even we've see, even seen that with national level skateboarders that really good skateboarders will still get pushed to the edge of the park in an open session, even though they might be the best person on the park. And similarly, people who might be the best person on the park, and we interviewed some very good skateboarders, um, get told that they're good for a girl, that it's assumed they're not as good. And one young woman said, who's a street skater said, if I've got a low ponytail and I've got boy type clothing on, they assume I'm better than if, I, if I've got a bit of makeup on, look like a girl. Um, so there's this assumption they're not going to be very good and there is constant hassle. In other ways, the experience of young women was quite like the experience of young men. Um, they had similar attitudes to physical risk. Everybody we interviewed, men and women, said, yeah, the real difference in physical risk is either personality or whether you're a beginner or not. And beginners are more scared, obviously. Um, so generally, attitude to physical risk is the, seems to be the same between young men and young women. Um, but obviously the locational risk means that they're more likely, young women are more likely to use transition skate parks. And that's, you know, these sort of big skate parks with high ramps and, and deep bowls. And the problem with that is that they risk much bigger injuries because you're much more likely to get a serious concussion or break your leg in a transition skate park. Whereas if you're just skating street and you're doing tricks on flat ground. Yeah, you can always, as somebody said, land primo and die. Um, landing primo is when you land on the edge of the board. And if you don't mean to do it, you're quite likely to come off backwards and just fall over. Um, but but you're, you know, the sort of injuries you're likely to have from doing small tricks on flat ground are broken ankles, broken wrists, rather than concussion. And we interviewed three women in our quite, you know, modest sample who'd had proper concussions and other people had clearly had smaller ones. Um, young women are also more likely to skate in just skate in beginner sessions or just skate in women and girls sessions. Now, at best, they're once a week in a skate park. So that means they, they're skating much less often than young men. Um, and that, that has obvious implications for their ability to do, do the things that reduce injury. So they have less falling practice time and learning to fall properly is a big contributor to not having a head injury. Um, there's quite good research on that. And, and as I said, they need coaching to get started. So they need to come to women and girls sessions or, or beginner sessions. Um, and in terms of the sort of focus of this, of this seminar and this group, access to PE, access to skateboarding during PE would support young women starting and learning to skateboard um but you would have to take account of the physical risks um and a lot of the beginner sessions i don't know if there's any evidence on this this is just my view a lot of beginner sessions particularly in in countries like britain take place in sports halls you know if they're not in if they're not in a skate park they'll they'll be in a sports hall and the floors are really slippery 
So I do wonder about the safety in those arenas, but that's what people are using because that's what there is. And similarly in the school hall, the school hall is going to be quite slippery, um, particularly if it's polished wood, although it'd be more forgiving when you fall on it than a concrete skate park. Um, and I think that's all, really. So I'm handing over, I think. Thank you so much, Carrie. That's wonderful. Um, what is going to be really exciting is um, we'll see the connections and the synergies between our talkers, especially when we get to Alison when she talks about her curriculum and it will mirror what you've been saying about those um, transition skate parks and the big bowls and the potential need to go from a flat to a undulating rather than just starting on the undulating. But we'll uh, hold that pause for a second and head to Jordan next. Thank you so much, Jordan. Right, thanks everybody. Uh, I've got some screens uh, to share, slides to share with you all. So uh, give me a second and uh, I'll get those set up. Cool. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much for the opportunity to contribute, everybody. And before uh, I get on to the, the, the parkour elements, uh, which I'll talk about in a bit more depth, I wanted to almost take a step back, first of all, to see kind of why I ended up um, interested in lifestyle sports in the in the first place. Uh, and I spent nine years teaching in schools. I've now spent nine years working in teacher education um, and Looking at my own experience, uh, talking to staff in schools that we work with uh, regularly and also consulting the research, you can you can kind of see some of the things that uh, were causing some issues for me personally, but also wide scale, not just in England, but across the globe, um, was that uh, PE wasn't necessarily hitting the mark for, for all pupils. Um, and I often ask my teacher education students, like how many, how many students do you think in a typical PE lesson does PE really work for? Um, and they, they vary. Uh, some of them say 50, 60 percent. Um, and some of them, some of them say a little bit more, some of them say a little bit less. But uh, I think that's a really sad story that uh, we've got students that are taking part in two lessons of PE, 39 weeks a year for 14, 15 years of their life. And we get to the end of it um, and they haven't built a good relationship with being physically active. Um, and if we were in a business and we spent that much time doing something and at the end it wasn't successful, it would it would get scrapped. Um, and I know uh, David Kirk has called for radical reform or extinct extinction um, of the subject. And so, you know, I think we can do better with the time that we've got. Um, and you can see some of the elements that are on the on the board there. You know, we want students to come out saying that they enjoy PE. They've got a positive relationship with physical activity. Um, they organize their lives so that they can integrate physical activity into their lives. Um, and it doesn't just make their lives longer. Uh, I'd argue it makes their lives better. Uh, so whilst I think tying PE to health is sometimes a little bit sketchy, it's normally the way that we get listened to, isn't it, when we tie PE to health? Um, so that that tends to be the one that gets over. But I think the health is a secondary outcome. If you get kids that have got a positive relationship with physical activities better, uh, it makes their life better, not just longer uh, as well. And this was this was kind of the, the quote from Ken Green, is that people say, when you talk to PE teachers, justify your subject. What does it do? They'll tell you, oh, get kids, get kids interested in being physically active. Um, 
And it might do that in the short term because they're active in the lessons, because the teacher tells them to. And we've got some some compliant children, maybe. Um, but what happens when they've got their own free choice is that lots of young people choose not to be physically active. And actually, even yesterday, I uh, saw there was an article in The Independent that looked at some research from Bristol Uni um, that was telling us that since the pandemic, kids are uh, year six children. So that's top of primary school here in the UK um, are spending more time sitting down than they than they ever did before the pandemic uh as well so you know we've got some issues to try and fix there as well uh gary stidder um academic based at brighton in the in uk um bought out this book uh very recently uh and there's a chapter in there on modernizing pe um and i read it and i just found myself nodding uh, all the way through uh, and you can see some of the points on the on the board um, there is that actually if we want to do a better job for the pupils that are in front of us, um, keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect different results. I think that's the definition of madness. So we've got to look at what we're doing, who's it working for, um, who's it not working for, what could we do to make it better? Um, and I'm not saying that lifestyle sports are the silver bullet that's going to you know change the world, but it's one small thing that we could do that could make a difference for some pupils. OK, um, and that's kind of what attracted me to it in the first place. My background really as a youngster and sort of through my 20s wasn't lifestyle sports at all. I, I was a footballer, cricketer, bit of athletics um, in there. So, you know, I loved my traditional PE experience. But when I started looking at the kids around me when I was teaching, I realised mm, there's not there's not that many kids here that are like me. Uh, so we needed to perhaps do something a little bit different in there as well. And to back this up, I was like, right, let's let's not just look at the activities. Let's look at how we're doing things. Um, and I was drawn to the recent work that hopefully many of you are familiar with around meaningful PE um, and meaningful being something that holds personal significance. You build a connection with that activity um, or something that you want to do um, for it. And it's so you're motivated you'd actually go and make time for this as well and in their work in 2017 um steph benny and colleagues uh, looked at the features of meaningful experiences in pe and youth sport and came up with those six features that you can see in the blue boxes there as well and the idea was that if we gave young people opportunities to access these features through our teaching then it has the potential to lead to a more meaningful experience for those young people. Um, some of those features will be more important to some students than others. And it's not to say that you have to have all of them in every lesson. Uh, it might be how you blend and use those. And there's there's some quite nice work about kind of an equalizer approach. Some of them can be amplified. Some of them can be uh, dampened depending on the individual or the activity uh, as well. Within that, they encourage the use of democratic approaches. So student voice, student choice, um, not just within individual lessons, but also things like curriculum design. So are we talking to our young people about the kind of things that they would like to do in their lessons uh, as well? Um, and getting them to reflect on those um, as well once they've made some individual goals and getting them to think about how activities have made them feel. Uh, and it was something that I did actually this morning when I was teaching, I asked the students, uh, they're, they're 11, 12 year olds, they'd just done some kickboxing and, uh, and some CrossFit stuff with me. And I said, right, chat together, come up with one word that describes the last three or four lessons that we've done on this activity as well. And, and they came up with enjoyment, fun. Some said it was tiring. Uh, I was quite pleased with that. Um, 
some said it one one girl said it was easy so i obviously need to make it a little bit more challenging for her next time um but they all seem to they had a smile on their face and they seem to respond positively um to some of that stuff as well so anyway, when I went back to the PE curriculum, I was like, right, what are we doing with the PE curriculum? And was drawn to this work around movement forms. Um, and if you think about your PE curriculum, and I got my students to do this, which of those categories do we spend most time on when we're looking at our PE curriculums? Uh, and we talk about breadth and we talk about balance. And actually, most of our PE curriculums don't have very good breadth or very good balance. Uh, across those different forms of movement that you can see there, which were from kind of Margaret Whitehead's work around physical literacy. So we've got adventure forms, aesthetic, athletics, competitive, fitness, health, interactive relations. You can see some of the lifestyle stuff quite naturally fits into the interactive relational category, some of it into the fitness and health category um, as well. I have to say, uh, although some lifestyle sports have been made competitive, I tend to move away from that when I'm teaching some of this with trainees and young people, because I think that's dealt with quite well in other areas of the curriculum. So whilst we have seen, you know, skateboarding is an Olympic sport and there are competitive forms of parkour that have been kind of put out there. Um, it it doesn't sit as comfortably for me in that I try and keep it in that kind of social relational aspects of those areas as well. Right, I'm going to skip this one because we've kind of looked at some of that and people can maybe go back to this on the video if they're interested. I'm aware of, of time on that as well. Um, so what have I been doing? So I've been doing an intervention study uh, as part of my doctorate uh, that looks at implementing lifestyle sports in schools uh, and collecting some data from teachers and from pupils to see how it goes. So I've just finished delivering a parkour unit in a, a school. We've done equivalent of eight lessons of parkour. Um, and then I'm just about to start going in. I'm actually going in this afternoon to do some focus groups with the pupils to find out what they think about it as well. They've done a pre-unit and a post-unit survey. So I'll be crunching the numbers on some of those and be able to share some findings uh, later in the year on those as well. Uh, each lesson has been delivered by me. Uh, that was because we decided that it was the easiest way to kind of maintain intervention fidelity. Um, and also the teachers are so busy uh, I didn't I wouldn't have time to adequately train teachers in a short space of time to let them do this. This comes to like one of the issues of implementing lifestyle sports in schools. So the teachers have been doing some observations. I've been keeping a reflective journal and uh, I'll also interview the teacher post unit to find out some stuff there. What have we been doing? So we've broken up parkour into kind of all its constituent elements. Uh, so we've done some landing, some rolling, uh, different types of jumps, uh, different types of vaults. Uh, Tic-tac movements, which basically means where you're interacting with the wall, so kind of kicking off walls when you're in a vault and things like that. Um, climbing and scaling, so being able to get up stuff and do that. Hanging and swinging, so upper body strength, being able to hang, pull yourself up like a muscle up, we call that in parkour. Um, and then putting this all together, so getting the students to design their own courses and combinations so that they can go away and, and do it. And it's been taught with a safety element, obviously, because this kind of always comes up when you talk about delivering parkour in school. So it's kind of safety first, but I try and deliver it through uh, a, an exploration kind of approach. So the teaching approach is very much sit in the, the kind of middle of Moston and Ashworth spectrum uh, of kind of discovery style kind of approaches. And a lot of that is actually divergent discovery. So actually there's a there's a problem 
but there's multiple solutions. So the way I can describe this is if I've got a box and I'm asking the students to get over the box, there's lots of ways that they can get over that box, uh, depending on their ability, their body shape, their confidence, what they've done before um, to be able to do that. All I'm asking them to do is, is it fluent? Is it efficient? Are you being creative um, to be able to do that? Are you safe um, as well? And then they can come up with multiple solutions. And the students seem to really respond well to that um, because they're not having to prescribe to a fixed technique that's only one right way to do it that defines people as either being successful or unsuccessful. So I think the looseness of some of that um, doesn't always sit comfortably with with some practitioners. Um, they like to, to have the, and there are some set techniques and I might dip in and demonstrate some ideas, but I never prescribe and say that you have to do a lazy vault or a thief vault or whatever it might be that we're looking at in a parkour kind of situation. What we're trying to do is create people that can interact effectively with their environment. Um, and I've got some great videos that we've got through that. Unfortunately, I'm not allowed to share them because of ethics um, of the, the students have made. So at the end of the unit, they made their own parkour reel. Uh, a reel is like a video that goes on Instagram for, for anybody that's uh, not sure. And connecting that. So the kind of youth culture element that you can bring into it, because actually a big part of the parkour community in the real world is sharing what you're doing uh, and, you know, presence on social media and things like that. And, you know, even showing people when you get things wrong. I think that's really important is that we we get kids to the point where they're like, oh, I can't do it. Or it's like you're allowed to get it wrong. That doesn't matter. Um, and if you fall over or trip, you know, we'll look after you. Um, there's some safety stuff in there as well. Uh, the initial kind of reflections from me, looking at, I've been working with a mixed gender, mixed ability group. Um, they're in year eight, which is uh, 12, 13 years old. Um, there's two things that really stand out for me. Number one, when I get there, they all get changed at lunchtime because they're keen to get in. So I think that tells you something straight away. Um, they really like working in like small groups. So we do a lot of group work. So like almost like mimicking a cooperative learning type of setup um, where they're working in small groups and they've got roles uh, within their groups to be able to do that. And then we work on like a rotation kind of unit as well. Um, Lots of elements of creativity. And actually what I've been really surprised of is that actually lots of opportunities for me as a teacher to stand back and just take a minute to watch and see what's going on um, as well. And it, it's that that idea of being able to step back and observe and not always have to go hands in straight away from a teaching perspective is is quite good. Because if we try and mimic the natural environment that parkour takes place in and I want the learning to be slightly organic, pupil led, um, kind of a nail it or fail it kind of approach is lots of this. And it's pretty similar in, in skate sports, I know, as well. Um, and a lot of peer support um, to be able to do that as well. Some of the challenges. Um, so obviously moving this from a unit that I've been doing parkour um, for about 10 years to actually then trying to get it to be something that normal PE teachers could do is has been one thing. And so that's the other area that I've been looking at is working with um trainee teachers uh, to upskill them to be able to deliver some of these lifestyle activities and in particular um, parkour. Now, I've been lucky at my institution. I've been able to create a whole unit that's dedicated to lifestyle sports that looks at some of the theory behind it, the pedagogy. And then we look at some different examples of lifestyle sports through a practical element uh, as well. What is really good is that the students, uh, they embrace it. They're very enthusiastic about it. Um, 
they they seem very engaged with the with the module. Um, but what I have noticed is is that they go away with these ideas and then they come to a bit of a barrier and a block um, because they go into schools and and then they're a bit stifled because they don't have the power. So a new a new teacher, early career teacher goes in and they've got that lack of power. So not only do we need to look at this, it's the kind of second uh, second from bottom and bottom uh, slide there. So teaching them how to influence and manage change. So how do you get that happening? Um, and then looking at, uh, we look at it through the theory of practice architectures, which basically are the ideas that either allow or inhibit change within, um, within particularly an educational structure in this environment as well. And so trying to get them to manage that and negotiate that in teaching them some models of how they would manage change. Uh, so we look at Cutler's eight, eight step model of change to be able to influence some of those areas as well. Um, what I do hope is that when they do get into positions of power, maybe two or three years down the line, is that they embrace some of this stuff where they, they can start to bring it in more as well. But I have to say, when I've spoken to schools, I've got two schools on board with my doctorate study. Um, a lot of schools are quite receptive to this. Um, the big barrier for them is time. They just don't have the time for effective um, CPD um, to be able to do it. And I know Tom Leaders uh, on the call has done some work around teachers CPD and lifestyle sports. Uh, so uh, that's worth taking a look at um, as well. But trying to get that upskilling of teachers is something that's going to be uh, important if we want to be able to see lifestyle sports move into, into more and more P departments uh, as well. Uh, little signposting. So uh, if you if you want to pick up some of the, the work that I've done around this, a couple of articles that you can see on the screen. So one connecting uh, lifestyle sports with meaningful PE and then a more parkour related one that was in PE Matters that looks at implementing alternative. Both of those are on my research gate or, or if you look me up uh, on Twitter as well. But yeah, very happy to to uh, take questions later on. Uh, but I'll pass the button. Thanks very much. Uh, thank you so much, Jordan. Um, I particularly um, like your emphasis on the need to fail and the needing to share that. There was um, on my um, Instagram reels yesterday, that was pretty much what everybody was doing, was actually sharing uh, their, uh, their fails of doing a back somersault over BMX ramps. So it was really wonderful to hear you talking about it as well in terms of the educational process. Um, we have uh, questions coming into the chat box. Please feel free for everybody else to add questions too and it's also you'll see the connections Jordan between what Alison's about to tell us in that reflection element uh, as she applies her spiral and her wheels curriculum and over to you Alison please. Hi uh, greetings everybody if I start barking it's not me it's the dog but I'm just really delighted to be here and <laughs> take some time to go over some really exciting stuff that our PE specialists have been doing. We always like to give them an opportunity to take some ownership of something and then um, facilitate the embedding of that into our generalist curriculum. So we call the generalists the, um, the lifelong PE because that's the, they just get an early years across the key stages experience and we really just uh, adopt a spiral approach. So we're just revisiting. And as we do that, we switch out the environments and then we switch out the mediums. So um, from this regard, this work came um, following a year of looking at 
agility, balancing, and coordination um, on flat surfaces without wheels. So this is the next part of the curriculum spiral. So big thank you for having us. And these are some of our amazing PE specialists who um, are already just graduated and are using wheels to greater and less, lesser extents in their, their new schools bearing in mind that they're early career teachers. And so the insights from Carrie and Jordan um, to date have already written down about progressing and the meaningful frameworks. I'm grateful for that. We we thought of wheels, why wheels, why not? You know, it's, it's just like, it's that environment where phys the physicality I've noticed from how our pre-service teachers move. It's so lovely to give them an experience where all of them have a, a bit more parity so they can manage their bot their bodies better. Um, educationally, it's, it just fits well from the early years into our key stages, our primary and secondary school. And of course, we want them to move beyond that. And we've got the safety aspects, of course, for the active transport, but also just the joy. Um, and, and I've been hearing that from Carrie and from Jordan, just giving our students more of um, more awareness of what's around them, the environments around them and managing that risk and managing themselves in there. Wheels, we use, um, we just start with body scooter boards and uh, we take them outdoors, but with our with our generalists, our, our LPE, we keep them indoors for a variety of reasons. The floor is quite soft and it's also heated and our, our generalists quite appreciate that. Um, the, the specialists, they'll take it out to the playground, but um, what's lovely is that our, our body boards are accessible for children of, of all um, of varying needs, as it were. So they're different widths and they have protection for the hands so that if they do slightly flip the way Carrie was speaking about, then they wouldn't hurt their knuckles and such. Also, it's a little, it's just a small place to fall from. So they get the balance from the beginning from their bodies and they manage the body um, in relation to other parts of their body and relation to their body when they're moving and relation to the body when they're moving in and out of things when we look at the terrain and such so everything that we know that's why we bought into let's do some wheels our paper um just shares our we study and it was just a real nice study that we did with our our specialists and um christy's at canterbury and she's our PE specialist ambassador. So it's lovely that we get to do some collegial work. And wheels is one medium. We've done some other things around dance, swimming, um, other uh, tennis. That's, uh, that's sort of the shopping list so far. So again, it's just about giving our PE specialists that time to take ownership and think about them as prospective leaders of, of the subject. So we take it from early years and we look at the agility, balance and and coordination. And this is what we did with this group. They did look at agility, balance and coordination through some outdoor play and some activities and also through parkour. Um, this jump, so I'm a big fan and, um, and we also incorporate parkour and we use parkour before we put them on the wheels. So it's just really, again, just getting that cat. If you're going to fall, jump, <laughs> um, just look where you're going. So, and we try and get that whole spiral thinking. So they're trying to think of coming back to things and getting um, deeper reflections. And then um, a lovely thing is that they've, they've got a gift. They've got a product to give back to our generalists, as well as some things to take onto their placement and into their next school. We went down to Kent Cyclopark, Gravesend. And that's just a great place. 
but it also provides an environment which is very much like a school. You've got that easy terrain and it, it looks like the street, Carrie, you know, just thinking about you, you've just got flat surfaces, you've got some easy surfaces, you've got surfaces that are a little bit undulating. Uh, we've got um, the tarmac, so we've got the street kind of deal where we can add cones and make it uh, more authentic for, for younger children. And also, as you see in public parks, they put down the roadmap, so that makes it exciting. But um, for us, we wanted our student teachers to reflect upon what they were doing. And also because they're not professional cyclists, they don't need to be, but when they were getting a little bit of an experience, then they would embody that, um, take them through a series of progressions, and then take them back out so they could physically hydrate, physically rest, have a chat, have a think, and start to think about implications for other teachers. So we really wanted this to be um, a, a meaningful experience from an educational standpoint as prospective um, PE leaders. And then because they have the underpinnings around the environment, around the affordances, what's there, what can you create, um, how can you switch things up? And we did have terrific instruction from one of the expert coaches down there, Anthony, as well as um, some informal coaching and mentoring from myself and Christy. And we did want them to come up with something. So it was a real nice cycle where they do a practical and then they think about it and they do another practical mini challenge. Then they think about adapting. Then they come and sit and chat and then get back out for the next one. And as we did that, we took them through five different progressions, um, bearing in mind that was through a progression following the fact that we've already done that through agility, balance and coordination through parkour. So we knew they were competent with their bodies without wheels. Let's see how they are with wheels. And some of them had uh, were complete novices and some were slightly more experienced. So we started flat surface, balanced bikes where they don't have to think about the coordination of pedaling gears or any of that. It's just uh, propelling and getting that motion. And then we introduced them to adapt, um, adapted bikes and trikes, again, flat surface. And thinking about it, of course, they were enjoying it and challenging themselves, but also they're thinking about um, pupils when they're on placement. And when we were sitting down in the reflection, how's that going to look for um, prospective teacher educators and for, for teachers who are in the curriculum and teaching in the elementary, secondary school, but might not be comfortable on wheels. So it was lovely and refreshing to hear the eminent Professor Carey saying, I'm not a skateboarder. <laughs> well, it's just it's just accessing it. So the progression is just as you see, it's very simple. Scooters, small wheels. Then we go from flat surface to more, um, more um, challenging terrain. And then from wider wheels to smaller wheels. Um, and all of them, I'd say, all of them can come into a school setting apart from... Um, the undulating surface, but you can put a little something flat, a plank of wood over the, it's amazing that doesn't sound like a lot, so you can go around some cones and over a plank of wood, and that does provide a bit of a challenge. So we all know how to um, make progressions that um, you, you can do that have been risk assessed. What was lovely for us is um, our students were enjoying the different types of challenge of the ICANN affirmations. So we're thinking about from that balanced starting point, which is a nice entry for a progression spiral. And then following a partner, leading, um, choosing. You heard that again from Jordan when we're thinking of structured choice, the change challenge choice. And then um, moving it back into real settings 
So it's from the, so I suppose it's the Graham, you know, the movement analysis framework where we're progressing from invariant to more dynamic, to more um, situ, more meaningful ex experiences that they can have, but we're giving them the fundamental moves that they can have and progress them into advanced and sports specific uh, with the chance to do emergent skills when we're getting environments that are slightly more dynamic and unexpected. Um, and we're aware of the progressions and of the risk, which is why with our generalists, we start with our scooter boards. Uh, this group took some great um, opportunities to share practice. That practice has already been shared into our general program here. And so it's just gorgeous that I've got uh, PGC students and we've, we're seeing undergrads who are generalists who are coming up with meaningful learning objectives that are accessible for children of varying abilities and using the scooter boards in ways that are managing um, that are manageable for themselves when they're on placement. So we're keeping this, it's quite modest, but it seems to be working right now and it's just a joy uh, to, to have our specialists prepare something for a generalist program. That was um, just wonderful. And as a thanks, um, our specialists loved coming together and they just shared a little checklist that they think that other educators might find of value. And it's just quite nice that some of their um, some of their ideas and shares are very pragmatic and practical and some are quite philosophical. And that potentially could have been because we were in that reflective day in that cycle, um, sorry, cycle of of doing and sharing and um, and just trying things and reflecting. So it's really nice that they're thinking already as educators for uh, for physical activity to, to, to help people become lifelong physically active using wheels. And I think that's pretty cool. My best friend, apart from my dog, is my bike, Marmaduke. And I just wanted to ask, you know, who's your friend? You know, who who's around? Uh, we have, a, we're getting an audit, we're getting some, some more wheels into our program and uh, whatever works but it is lifelong it is a lifestyle so it's just something that even if we're um, whatever we're doing I mean I I cycle to the coffee shop you know because that's that's probably extent of what I do and I can't get to work without stopping for two lattes so I'm probably not the best model but um, the idea is to bring it back to the family to come into settings which are accessible and I, I think that's really important what we do in physical education and how we do it and how we model it really counts to get our children and young people enjoying the spaces and the affordances that are out there and that's really good if we can have our students being looking at an affordance and see what it was planned and designed for and then if it safely can be used in another way which is exactly what we do for skateboarding exactly what we do for parkour and these are beautiful forward life lessons that which makes this a life a lifestyle sport thank you for listening we're kind of excited to do any collaborations and we're already in some and it's just really nice to share some practice from our students thank you everybody Thanks so much, Alison, for sharing uh, your cycling and how amazingly you've implemented it into your um, practice with your teachers. So um, we're going to head to our um, um, shorter question and answers. So um, I'll just while everybody's having a chance to put their questions into the chat, 
I'm just going to pick up the ones that have come through already. And I'm going to ask um, all three panel members um, of, so it sounds like we are in the midst or starting a revolution um, to try and introduce a little bit more of these lifestyle um, activities and sports into our curriculum to then see it in the community. So my question to each of you is, um, how would you advise our next generation of teachers to help them influence and manage this change? Jordan, can I start with you? Is that okay? Yeah, no worries. Uh, the, the first point that I always make to my students around this is you've got to show that change is necessary. Um, so you've got you've got to show that there's some kind of, of problem uh, that can be solved or something that we're able to do better. Uh, so that would be my first point is is they need to come up with the evidence for that. Um, student voice, I think, is a great place to start um, for, for some of these kind of interventions that we might be looking at here as well. Um, the next one is a little bit of a trick that I've asked them to use um, is that most people will do something if you tell them it's a trial. So you say, I want to trial this. Um, and also most people will say yes, if it doesn't involve them having to do more work. Uh, so if you can say that you'll do all the work and it's a trial and we'll see how it goes. Um, and then usually that gets you to the point where someone will say, yes, OK, give it a go. The big problem in, in a PE setting is what gives. So, you know, there's only so many PE lessons. Uh, so everyone's very precious about their favorite activities or whatever it might be. So that's what you've got to be able to, to articulate as well is if you are going to bring in a unit of lifestyle sports that you want, you know, eight, eight lessons or so on it, then that's eight lessons of something else that need to be taken away. Um, and I guess I would go back to the movement forms work and look like where have we got duplication um, or where are we heavy and where could we come off some of those those ideas as well. I mean, some of the schools around here, if I told them that maybe like for one one of your years, you, you don't need to do rugby. I mean, they'd be mortified. Um, but I think I think that might be the kind of conversations that we need to have at some point. Brilliant. Thank you, Jordan. Um, and Carrie, what would be your advice to help um, our next generation? Well, I'm, just bearing in mind that I've never been a PE teacher, um, so I've never had to do this. I would say the first thing you might want to do if, you, if you're interested in something like skateboarding is go to your local managed skate park and look at a beginner's session or join a beginner's session. Sign up for, for open beginners. Most managed skate parks will, will run all ages beginner sessions with coaches gets gets you know get someone they often have boards and equipment sometimes safety equipment as well that you can borrow and they and somebody will teach you how to do it so that's one thing um the other thing is there are some managed skate parks i don't know how many of them do this that have some level of outreach to schools so for example if you if you're at projects in manchester at three o'clock in the afternoon um, there's people loading class sets of skateboards into cars because they go off and they teach in the local area. Um, and so the coaches are sort of driving off with 30 skateboards and, and equivalent numbers of helmets and, and going and teaching the local, you know, teaching in, in local schools. Now, I assume they get paid to do that, but, um, you know, there are, there are local skate parks that are very keen to get involved with schools. Um, in Nottingham, we have a, um, a local skateboarder, Joe Wardle, who's, a, who's given up primary school teaching to teach skateboarding. 
Um, and so, you know, she's available and, and people can book her to go and, and teach their, to do work in schools. I assume there are other people around, like her around the country. So, you know, like you can't possibly teach skateboarding unless you're quite good at, well, at least, at least you know, need to know what you're doing, what the issues are. I mean, I would never go near it, teaching it. Um, so, um, so, you know, go and see what it feels like and, and, and how scary it is. Although, to be frank, it's a lot less scary if you're eight. Absolutely. Um, thank you, Carrie, for emphasising that connection to community and school. It's really important, uh, one that we need to keep remembering as educationalists. Um, and Alison, what are your thoughts to help our next generation? I, I agree with both Carrie and Jordan. I think um, I'm sure my insight will complement and just meets what the expertise across the room here. I think for our students, I um, we do adopt and we embed the I can approach. If you want to, if you want change, you have to do it. If you want change, you have to be it. You're just going to have to get yourself out there. And it's lovely if we can help them and facilitate opportunities for them to have um, easier ways to practice that in in nice scaffolded sessions. So I think we want we want for them to impact. And for our students, ours do it especially with the generalists, and then we hope that the generalists take it into placement or or at some other point. And then I'm translating from my Spanish from living in Mexico, but essentially one thing that I need to work on is, because I'm so keen, is um, um, don't run to the students. So if you're a mountain, uh, don't, don't run to your students, let them come to you. And, uh, and I, I noticed that when I was on supervision looking at a student, a PG, yesterday and she she did not want to apologize but she said you know when we were doing your seminars and your workshop sally we um we were just messing around and uh and i said yeah and she and i said and that's fine i said you something was going in because here you are and she was just seeing and starting to recognize the value the holistic value of physical education and how it can enhance lives and so for all that I just had the goosebumps and um, that's just given me some sort of implicit you know own feedback to just when when they're ready that's great but I, I'll do my very best to start with those affirmations and use scaffolded steps for them to be successful. Thank you so much, Alison. Um, I'm, I'm aware of the time and I don't want to um, run over. So I um, there are one or two questions in the chat that I will pass on to our speakers to make sure that we actually get answers back to our uh, questionees. Um, I think that's word, or it is now anyway. Um, and, but the, I also wanted to do is to make sure that we had just a moment to link across to our May Connect to um, introduce and uh, continue our conversations and our discussions. So I'm just going to tag over to Aria, who's going to tell us about May. And before we do, one final thank you to our speakers. Thank you so much for your time and for your presentations today. Over to Aria, thank you. Oh, thank you, Christy, and so good to see you all. Thank you, very, very interesting presentation. And I really uh, hope that all of you will join us in May 26th. So in UK, it will be 3 p.m. Uh, in European, Central European time, 4 p.m. And those who are living over the seas, Canadian part, for example, so there will be 10 a.m. And we are going to continue with uh, this uh, ISF early year special 
issue that we um, published in Yeser and we are celebrating these articles and themes. So you are really, really welcomed. And thank you for this. Thank you everybody and um, have a wonderful uh, rest of the day. And thank you so much for joining us today.